All right, our, many of our kids are dismissed. Uh, you'll see Pastor John back there in the back, and parents, if you haven't signed them in, you'll have a chance to do so. Make sure no adults leave now in this portion to get out of here. Good try. Not yet. Well, he gave them families. Four words. He gave them families. A reminder that we see at the end of chapter 1 of God's faithfulness to these faithful Hebrew midwives who feared God, and in fearing God, they obeyed in God. Their actions reflected a proper level of priorities. He gave them families makes particular sense when we consider creation. And God created them, male and female, and He gives them this command to be fruitful and to multiply and have dominion over the earth. That He gave them families is, is both a reminder that the people are living how God designed and commanded them to live. He gave them families. Now, this morning, keep in mind as we go through Exodus, as we close the last few verses of Genesis and we go to the first two chapters of Exodus, we'll cover 400 years of history. And then the next 38 chapters of Exodus will cover like a year or two. The implications of the first two chapters of Exodus are gigantic for us. And my prayer this morning is that the Spirit of God would use His Word to, to shape and form each of us in our head, our hearts, and our hands. Lord, help us to understand and to have a right collection of what it means to fear you and the totality of who we are. So let's begin as we look and reflecting upon the first seven verses this prayer, Lord, would, would our hearts perceive the beauty of the God who keeps His promises? The beauty of a God who keeps His promises and the, likewise a people who abide in His commands. To be fruitful and to multiply and the people are indeed fruitful and multiply and, f and fill out into the land. Both of these are beautiful. They're beautiful. The beauty of this, of, of a God who is faithful and good, that should strike us. And, and when the people of God do what they're called to do, that that is beautiful, operating according to the design and the gift of God. So in order to understand Exodus 1, we need first to go back again to Genesis 1. And as I went through in our overview last week, there will not be a Sunday that will pass in which, and reflecting upon Exodus, we aren't forced to consider something from Genesis. And likewise, something of Christ, as Jesus told those men that Moses foreshadowed him, speaking of him. So let's look in your Bibles to Genesis 1, 27 through 28, as we look at the fact that God's good command is given at creation. We're going to unpack verses 1 through 7, but first we have to catch everybody up to speed the best we can by looking at this origins of this command that God gave, this good and beautiful command in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, 28. Otherwise, when we read Exodus, we're not familiar, or it's just been a while since we've read the book of Genesis, we can read and we can gloss right over the first few verses, and we can say, oh, oh this is great, the Israelites were fruitful and began multiplying, and this is a good thing. It is a good thing. But when we miss the anchor of the command of which they're fulfilling in the creation mandate, and then this command given to Abraham and a promise that God gave to Abraham that his seed would, would become multiple as the stars in the sky and from them would, would indeed come one that would bless the nations, the Christ. So looking back at Genesis 1, 27 through 28, we note that God's good command is given at creation, this command to be fruitful and to multiply. And verse 27 is going to lay for us the foundation by which verse 28 can actually be fulfilled. For 
God creates them male and female. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 through 28. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This good gift in domain becomes the foundation by which verse 28 is able to be fulfilled and enjoyed and the blessing therein. It says in verse 28, and God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and, and God said to them, be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over the flesh of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now, God created them male and female. This God designed and gifted us in this binary, this complement. What a gift that God has given. There is no shame in that. Even the quoting of Genesis 1, 27 and 28 could be very well controversial in our culture today. But we ought not feel shame. There should be no shame in recognizing God's good and faithful design. Male and female, He created them in His image. We as Christians are forced, as we look at the beginning of Exodus 1, to ask the question, do I believe the things of God's Word are true and worthy of consequences if I hold to them? Will I trust in what Scripture says is true and pay the possible consequences that might come? Will I have fear and courage as the Hebrew midwives did? And embrace any possible consequences because as believers, we ask God to give us eyes and heads and, and, and minds that perceive true beauty. And that which is beautiful, it, it's what's true. It's what's real. And what is true and what is real is not what will happen by majority or by might. What is true and real is that which comports and aligns to the very mind of God. That's what's actually real. That's what we see in Genesis, God's creation of male and female, this complement that He's created and blessed in His image, creating in the image of God, this beautiful complement. Now, we know this is before the fall in Genesis 3, which brings a, a host of consequences. This sin infects and, and impacts our minds and our bodies and, and, and brings death to our souls. It, it impacts and brings a multitude of dysfunctions and breakdowns. Not the least of these is this relationship between male and female, which immediately comes with it abuses and shame and neglect, as the Genesis account rightly includes, and as our culture and every culture constantly reflects. So, male and female is a gift of God, a complement. There's not a multitude of these. There is two that God has created, male and female. God has wired this into our very DNA, sex and sexuality, this pivotal component of what is a beautiful gift that God has given, a provision for male and female by which to be fruitful and to multiply comes through. And so we as people can no more redefine this than we can redefine any other component of reality. We cannot redefine gender and we cannot redefine marriage, which is given by God and gifted and designed as husband and wife bound together. And if we do so, we'll experience the consequences of trying to rewire that which God has made, and we have no authority to do. And so when the engines begin to break down of redefining and recelebrating in this design that God has given, it will bring a consequence upon culture and creation and family and individuals. And that's what every culture testifies to, that tries to operate outside the good and beautiful design that God has given. And we know Scripture gives us a further picture of marriage and what it truly is to reflect. 
The greatest gift in how marriage is designed to operate is to reflect the husband laying his life down, as Ephesians depicts for us, as Christ laying his life down for the church and the bride submitting and, and uniting in this way. This beautiful picture and mystery as Paul describes it. But this is beautiful and good. To be fruitful and to multiply then in verse 29 brings with it this command that is good. So with sex, with procreation and and protection as a couple pursues one another, this becomes the, the foundation for provision and for flourishing for people and for culture and to the generations. This foundation for community, it is good and it cannot be redefined regardless of the consequences. Regardless of the passionate pleas to do otherwise. This is the good foundation. Now in Genesis 3, again, we know the the dysmorphias and the confusions and the way that sin impacts one's even attractions and all these different ways. But that does not redefine what God has given and is good. Male and female, He created them. There are but two. There is no transition that can happen. There is no plurality and multitude of different genders. There is but two. Male and female, He created them. And this good gift and foundation that God gives for marriage, this is beautiful. Do we believe that's true or will I not believe that's true? This is one of the defining issues that will come with a cost when we talk about kids club. This generation, that generation, right now there's some heat, there's some threat of being canceled or some component in our lives that many of us, especially younger ones, may feel as they continue on to grow older and older in the workforce. But what we have to ask as we come to the book of Exodus, do I believe God's design and command of what it is to be fruitful and multiply is still true? Or is it an open-handed issue? Because that's what their generation that's coming up We'll pay a cost for. But will they suffer well? Will they fear God and trust His commands? It's the beautiful way. Now, I want to say very clearly, if you this morning, if, if you are struggling in these areas of sexuality or, or gender identity, what we want to be able to help you understand is that we love you and care for you. And this is the place you're supposed to be. That we love you so much. God loves you so much more than our culture ever could. Than any kind of campaign or saying ever could. No celebration could ever redefine the way that we're made. And as believers, we're commanded to walk out our faith in community. And all of us as believers, we consistently die to ourselves. And as members of this congregation, we help each other live lives of repentance devoted to God's Word. Ever putting off and being renewed in our minds abiding in His way and finding the true abundant life. The abundant life and the philosophies of this world will never actually satisfy. But only the God who is the giver of life, the one in Christ that we rest in, His finished work, that becomes the very lens and identity by which we understand all of life from people and their value being created in the image of God from our purpose as people to go and to make disciples of Jesus Christ for His glory, from passions and true pleasures and purpose. All of these things we understand through the lens of the Gospel and the good news that we have. So come and share those things with us and let us give our lives to abiding in His way regardless of the pressures of the world because God's command given at creation, echoed here, is good and beautiful.
Now, so much more could be said in singleness and others, and we've said as much at some of the marriage and gender seminars, one of those Roman Wally helped to lead us in. And we'll have more and more that we'll talk about these things. But in the command of Genesis 1.28, before we continue on and see how this command is echoed to Noah and to Abraham and to Jacob, to be fruitful and to multiply, we cannot just put a pin in Genesis 1.27 and 28 and say, well, that was then, this is now. It, it ties back to this creation mandate. And it's good. And it's beautiful. It's a good thing. Now in 28, when we think of Exodus chapter 1, we're reminded of this. Even though the people, we read verse 7 and we see that they're being fruitful and multiplying and we say, hey, that sounds like what we just read at the very beginning in Genesis 1. Something's not right. Because the people aren't having dominion over the earth. God's people, Israel, are having dominion exercised over top of them in Egypt. So things are beautiful and good and yet we see the stain of sin and the fall upon them. Look forward in Genesis 9, 5-11, through 11, God's good command given to Noah and creation preserved. As you flip over to Genesis chapter 9, we'll just read verse 1 and, and verse 7. But as you flip over there, as a reminder through the book of Genesis, we see that in Genesis 6-5, God, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And so God brings judgment through this flood. And yet creation is preserved in Noah and his seed. And the command is given then in Genesis 9 after the waters subside. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, what? There it is again. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's echoed down again in verse 7 of chapter 9. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So we see this command mandate in the, in, the, in the domain of God's good command. Husband and wife bound together. This foundation for community and, and marriage and all of these things. And yet, as we read the book of Genesis, we see the people do not obey that. Uh, Noah gets drunk. It leads to this incredibly shameful event. And then we get to chapter 11. And we see that the people will not spread out, but rather they want to make a name for themselves and Babel occurs. But if we keep reading our Bibles, we come to see. A, B, and C. B, we saw that God's good command is, that was given at creation is given to Noah and creation preserved. And then in chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, that God has faithfully delivered upon His good promises to Abraham. So the promises that He makes to Abraham specifically, that from you this blessing is going to come forth. Exodus 1 is a reminder, hey, God keeps His promises. This is good. God keeps His promises. So let's read Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's what Exodus reflects. Pharaoh who chooses to curse the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He chooses to curse the God of the Israelites and he experiences, and the nation of Egypt experiences the consequences for opposing the Lord God. Now this is echoed, and you can write this down, in Genesis 35, 11, to Abram's grandson. Abram's grandson, Jacob. The command again is given, be fruitful and multiply. It doesn't stop. It just continues on. The commands are continually given. 
the beauty of the God of Abraham to bless and to preserve this seed. These sealed people are abiding. They're fruitful and multiplying, but we know through the book of Genesis, tons of heartache is everywhere. Every page almost details this frustration between husband and wife, this dysfunction that is seeping in and how they're treating each other. But also marks of the fall of Adam also infected. There's massive cases of infertility and jealousy and bitterness that takes place all through the pages. And if you want more detail of these names that we read here in Exodus chapter 1, verse 2. And by the way, you're going to hear when the elders read the Scriptures, we work through these 40 chapters, you're going to hear an East Texas accent. So you may hear some words you've never heard pronounced that way. Just go with it. Just go with it. Don't challenge, just embrace the sound of the words. Three words as you're ever in Bible study, so as we're involved in small groups and it's your turn to read the Bible and you don't know how it's pronounced, remember three words, three rules. Read it quickly, read it confidently, and don't let your voice get higher. It's the three words and people will be like, oh, I didn't know it was pronounced like that. It's not. It's not. But just go with it. And Jerry, you did a wonderful job, by the way. But when we look at this list of 12 in verse 2 of Exodus chapter 1, we see here Leah's kids and Rachel's kids. And you can write down as a reference Genesis 27 through 35. Genesis 27 through 35, we see the account, the heartache that happens. Leah's kids ultimately compose six of them. Rachel has two kids, Benjamin and Joseph. And then each of them has a servant connected to them. Balah with Rachel and Zilpha with Leah's kids. Genesis 27-35 detail the heartache. So we see components of Genesis chapter 1, verse 27-28 through 28 of this being fruitful and multiplying, but this frustration and difficulty to actually have dominion over the earth as the Lord designed. The fall has impacted a multitude of things. So through it all, God is faithful. When we read the first seven verses of Exodus, we're reminded that God is faithful. He keeps His promises. Even through the heartache of it all, He's still working toward the promised Messiah that will come from the tribe of Judah. He's faithful. So isn't that beautiful? And so Lord, help us to perceive true beauty. And true beauty aligns with your creation and your word. Help us to perceive true beauty with our heads. Secondly, may our hearts understand that that God keeps in the keeping of God, of His promises and His people's abiding in His commands. It does not equate to an easy life. So it's beautiful when God, with the faithful God, God is always beautiful. And when His people abide in His commands, that's beautiful as well. But those things do not mean an easy life. Exodus chapter 1 makes this so clear for us. This is so important for believers and, and new believers to grasp at the very beginning. We see this unpacked in two ways. And you can flip over your Bibles to Genesis 15, 7 through 21. We see all these things were according to the word and way of God. Our patient God, He promised a blessing of the land. So when we come to Exodus, if we are completely unfamiliar with Genesis, we can kind of, it seems like God may be playing some catch-up ball. But that's not what's taking place. If we look in Genesis 15, 7 through 21, we see that God promised Abraham this is exactly what would take place. In Genesis 15, 7 through 21, our patient God, He promised a blessing of the land to Abraham after 400 years of affliction in Amorite sin, who was among the people already indwelling the land. And this is good news for us. Look what he says in verse 7 of Genesis 15. 
But he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And we see this, what we talked about last week, we won't go over it again in verse 9 through 12, but look down into verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain, know for certain, how am I supposed to know? And he says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. So they're going to go to a land that's not theirs, it's going to be Egypt. And they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. This is all going to work out quite well. But as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. How am I to know that I shall possess it? Well, you're going to die. <laughs> you're going to die. And your kids and great-grandkids and great-grandkids and on and on for about 400 years plus, they're going to be servants in a land that's not theirs. And they're going to be afflicted. You've got to think Abram's like, okay, when's the uptick coming? When's the good news here? But what does the Lord tell him? Know for certain that these things will take place. And in verse 16, And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That God is working purpose in the suffering and the growth and the being fruitful and multiplying of the Israelites. During that whole time, the sinful Amorites and the Canaanites and all of these were living in their ways by what they see as good. Their wicked ways are being filled up like a cup of wrath. And God then will propel and lead the Israelites as an agent of judgment upon these wicked nations. And He will give them this promised land. How does He know it's good? Because God is good. Abram says, how will I know this will take place? And he says, be certain, it will take place. Because though you're going to die, I don't die. I'm the faithful, covenant-keeping God. Don't you worry. Don't worry. I'm going to lead them, and I'm going to lead them not into this simple land of milk and honey right away, and there you are, but I'm going to lead them into a place of heartache and affliction. And that's what Exodus 1 begins us with. How faithful our God is. 400 years. Well, over 100 years. Nearly 150 years older than even the United States has existed. The Lord is patiently allowing these people in their wickedness to store up wrath for themselves. How patient our God is. And that's what we see in Exodus chapter 1. Look back to 8.16 now with this in mind from what we just read in Genesis. Look to Exodus 1, 8 through 16. Though Israel abided, they were disadvantaged. And I just summarized the words there that we see in 8 through 16 of how Israel was treated. These people that were being fruitful and multiplying. They were doing what God commanded them to do. And look at how they were treated by the Egyptians. Though Israel abided, they were disadvantaged, they were afflicted, they were burdened, they were treated ruthlessly, bitterly, hard, and murderously. The command in verse 16, if it is a son, you shall kill him. If it's a son, you shall kill him. Now it's ironic, isn't it? Verse 8. Verse 8 is deeply ironic. Because if we know the rest of the story of the Old Testament, we see that the command that God makes so clearly to teach 
about who I am and my covenant and the promises, teach us to your kids and teach us to your grandkids and teach us to their grandkids and just continue teaching. Make it the, among the highest of priorities to disciple your children in my ways and your grandchildren in my ways that they may be blessed. And we hear that, but it takes on an extra tone when we read verse 8 of Exodus chapter 1, doesn't it? Because the heartache of what the Israelites experience as a people that are multiplying, when we come to Genesis 46, when we finish the book of Genesis, about 70 of Joseph's family members come into Israel. When we open up Exodus and we see the years passing, they become this great multitude that Egypt cannot control. Then we get to Genesis 12 and we read that there's hundreds of thousands of, Egypt, of, of Israelite men. They're being fruitful and they're multiplying, but look at verse 8. What's the heart of their heartache? It's because now arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. When we finish the book of Genesis, we see this relationship. We see how the Lord God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He blesses Egypt through Joseph's provisions, his bitter brothers that sell them into slavery. God provides through all of this that protects this, them from this massive, massive famine. God uses it to turn Egypt into this mega, mega superpower of all the nations that are bringing their wealth to them. I mean, Joseph, it ends just with this great story, this great account of God's faithfulness. And yet, Egypt does not train up the next king in remembrance of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And eventually, Joseph is forgotten. And therein becomes this massive heartache through all the rest of the account of the Exodus. How different would this book read if the next king would have been Todd of Joseph and Todd in his ways? The fact that a generation that knew the faith did not, and the blessing of God did not take it serious to pour it into the next generation. And this is what God commands to Israel. Make a priority to teach the next generation to hand off, to deposit this good faith. And that's what we see that Paul gives to Timothy. Deposit the good inheritance. Pass it on. As believers, as, as, as Rick said this week in our men's breakfast, the highest priority that we can have is to be and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. To make disciples, followers of Jesus, who prioritize making disciples. This is our prayer for our kids. It has to be prayer number one that we make for them. Let them be a passionate disciple maker. Our kids club, is a, that's, this is a compliment to this. And so we, part of our next steps is going to be that we pray faithfully for this, but that we would give our lives constantly to making disciples. And if you don't have kids in the home, then be a part of our kids ministry, our preschool ministry, giving your life to training up the next generation. But God is faithful. Israel is faithful. And yet that does not preclude them from heartache. If our children do not grasp this when they begin to get bullied for their faith when they don't understand that to abide in the way of christ it's still beautiful and good even when you're not celebrated for that or you experience heartache for it how brittle will their, will their faith be but what a privilege that god gives us to pass on the faith to the next generation that's what we see here in our text what courage these midwives have in verse 15 look at their courage These two wonderful ladies. Here's a name if you're looking for a name for a child. Zilphra. 
That's definitely not it at all. Shifra. That might not be it either, but that's what I'm going with. Shifra and Pua. We do know what their names mean, though. Shifra means beautiful one. Pua means splendid one. On this day in our country, we remember D-Day and the courage of those that got on the planes to fly and to jump out. We remember those that loaded the boats and went to what was very likely certain death. What a tremendous courage. But those had weapons in their hands. These two midwives that's listed out of a multitude of Hebrew midwives, they hear a direct command from the most powerful man in the world and without weapons in their hands, they courageously choose to fear God. What is courage here is actually simply logic. For they say, who should we fear more, the most powerful man in the world or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That's the beauty that we have in the Scriptures. So we ask, and part of the responsibility we have as fellow members of this congregation is to help one another believe that this is true, even as we struggle to practice it. That hardship can and will come into our lives even when we abide in His way and His Word. As we look at the final verses, we talked about our head and the beauty that we call to recognize. We, call, we talk about the, our prayer that the Spirit would shape our heart to give us understanding when we experience sickness and death and heartache and abuses of a multitude of different kinds, even though we're abiding in the way of the Lord. And now we look to our hands. May our hands act consistently with the reality that evil will never overcome our faithful God. Evil will never overcome our faithful God. So if we know that, we may be like these brave women who fear God first. Their fears are in proper order. If you look back at verse 12, we note first in these two components of this that we see in these 21 verses that the logic of fallen man is no match for the wisdom of God. Look back to chapter 1, verse 12 of Exodus. Look at their reasoning. It's, it's quite logical. Remember, even our minds, our eyes, that the Scripture depicts that as fallen people will tend to even look at creation and worship creation rather than the Creator who sustains and gives. It's a part of the fall. Even our logic and mind that does not begin and is not rooted in a fear of God, it, it leads forward in time to foolishness. And so too, these men are logical, but they're fallen and walk in evilness. Verse 12, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So the logic of the Egyptians becomes they're multiplying, they're starting to get out of hand. Let's make their lives miserable, and that will keep them in line. They won't continue to multiply. But it's the opposite. They multiply even more. Fallen human logic can lead forward to a multitude of evils. Look at human history. Nearly every nation bears a stain of slavery and rationalized evil abuses. Even today, there's over some estimates over 40 million slaves still in captivity, many of them in sex trafficking situations. A multitude of evils, though seemingly logical, not, round, not founded in the goodness and nature and character and word of God, it leads forward to wickedness. But God's ways and God's word are different than our ways. 
And it's why we're constantly living lives of repentance, renewing our mind in the goodness of His Word. So look over to Isaiah 56. We'll see a demonstration of this. In Isaiah chapter 56, it's a text that can easily be overlooked because of the glory of Isaiah 53, a text we look at so often. But as you look to Isaiah chapter 56, we see a true aligning of real priorities that these midwives grasped that spoils the logic and the foolishness of the philosophies and the ways of man that's not rooted in the sustaining foundation of the triune God. And Isaiah 56, 3 through 5 is what we'll choose to read here. That the foreigner and the eunuch, that their foundations are even greater if they know the Lord God. The logic of fallen man is no match for the wisdom of God. Isaiah 56, in verse 3, reads like this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself in the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from His people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, listen, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. The wisdom and the way of God is greater than the wisdom and logic of man, even on the foundations that we would perceive with the blessing of He gave them families. That's the beauty of the kingdom of God. A young man named Bryce, you know Bryce. Uh, Bryce has moved away. He went to our members class and then he moved away. So be careful if you sign up for that. But no, that's not true. He, he knew he was going to move away, but he wanted to come and see what a picture of a, of a church that he had fallen in love with, how their philosophy of ministry looked like and, and different things like that. Well, Bryce has been captured by the gospel and the, his contagious love of the Lord. And one Sunday, he was up here playing, uh, playing bass, I believe, right, Steve? He was playing bass, and it was between the services. This is only like two months ago. And as I was walking out, I was going over to this room to give some people some trouble, and Bryce is holding the door open. He's just like holding the door. And I said, I was like, Bryce, like, did, weren't you playing? Like, how are you doing this too? And he said, I've got nothing better to do. And he realized how that sounded. And he said, no, 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 I don't mean that as a bad thing. He mean, I mean, genuinely, I have, there's nothing better than I could do than to hold this door right now. I got nothing else to do. I, I, it's, it's, it's better for me to serve and to hold this door than it would be just to sit over there and drink coffee and wait for the next service. And I've not forgotten that since you said that. I have nothing better to do. And the believer in Christ has nothing better to do than to submit and align our lives to His purposes of being and making disciples with all that God gives us, even from holding a door. We have nothing better to do, do we, church? Nothing better, truly. So may our hands consistently with the reality reflect that we trust in the promises of God. And the final verses, 17 through 21, this is what we see in the God-fearing midwives, that the greatest world superpower is no match for a few God-fearing midwives. No match. Now we know these two ladies' names. We know that Pharaoh as a title means great house, great house, inspiration perhaps for the components of the White House, great house. What a great and powerful place. Pharaoh has that as a title. 
What a great house. But a man who has the title great house is no match from a few Hebrew midwives that fear the Lord. It's the greatness of our God. They're no match. There's no competition. The strongest army is but a joke for a few God-fearing midwives who refuse to be intimidated into disobedience from Pharaoh. When we think through the stories of Scripture, there are multitudes of amazing situations of the Lord opening the wombs. He opens the wombs of these midwives and gives them families, as we talked about at the beginning. The Scripture speaks of that miracle of birth consistently, whether it was dealing with Sarah and Abram, for whom he brought forth Isaac, whether of Eve promising to make a, that snake-crushing descendant that would come in Genesis 3, 15, and 16. As he opened the heartbroken womb of Rachel, who was eaten up, that would lead forward to the Messiah. He would open up the womb of Samson's mom, we don't know her name, but ultimately leading forward to the Messiah. He would open forth the womb of Hannah, the mother of Samuel. And he would open forth the womb of Mary, this virgin, for whom the Holy Spirit would descend and bring forth Jesus, the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells. Colossians tells us of this. God's wisdom makes the pride of man foolishness. That's what we see in the midwives contrasted with Pharaoh. So the question is today, do you know Jesus? Do you know His ways? Do we prioritize His reality, which is ultimately true reality and beautiful, or do our fears, have our fears fallen in disorder? This, as believers, is what we have a commandment to around each other. So I'm going to ask you to do something here. I'm going to ask you to look around the room for a minute. Just look around. That means even the person sitting on the same pew, you might lock eyes, it might be uncomfortable. That's okay. Every person in this room has fears, myself absolutely, and of course we have fears. The question is, is are our fears in proper order? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. We have multitude of fears in this room. We have fears of dying and sickness and loss. The fear that many in our congregation have loved ones that are in that position of losing loved ones. What a fear. We have fears of letting someone down. And so perhaps we become workaholics or whatever it is. We have fears of failure and we also have fears of success. Fear of success. What if you're successful in pursuing the thing that you have made your greatest priority? You're longing for security. You're longing for status. You're longing for joy. What if you get it and you find out that it was actually vanity? Right through your fingers. We have fears of suffering of a multitude of kinds. The Hebrew midwives are people like us. They had fears. But the difference in this account is that their fears are in proper order. Their fear first begins with the Lord God. And they give this story to Pharaoh and they say, listen, these Hebrew ladies are just, they're hardcore. They're pushing these babies out before we even get there. We can't kill them. And God provides and God blesses them themselves with families. Even though our account stops here, what we want to understand before we come into our text next week, beginning in the final verse of chapter 1, is that this isn't the end of the story, is it? Pharaoh listens to what they say and says, okay, fine, can't trust you Hebrews to do this. I'll charge my entire people 
to dispose of the boys of the Hebrews. Wickedness never stops its attack. But the Lord who is faithful never ceases to preserve His people, to keep His word, and to give a blessing that is often too deep for understanding. Isn't He good? He's worthy of our lives. As we come to our next steps, I want to ask first, when you think of your head, your heart, your hands, and your next steps, which of these might be the Lord shaping you most in this season? So think of your head, think of issues you're troubling to grasp, perhaps, and and to recognize what's true and beautiful. As you think of your heart and components maybe of experiencing pains that that you're struggling to believe and wrestle with and accept. And on the final component of hands, that praying for courage to act in a way that's consistent with your faith and my faith. Which of those is the Lord challenging you in most in this season right now in your life? What I encourage you to do is to share that with someone. Share that with someone today. And, and in that, we have groups, our groups minister. We're going to have a few group connects. We'll talk about being involved with a group devoted to the Word. Men's group, women's group, small group. We're going to have some small group connect nights that we are praying that if you don't have a small group, you're consider being a part and getting a picture of what it is to be a part of a group devoted to the Word and helping each other walk in those relationships. So if you don't have a group, I encourage you to get involved with those two opportunities. That will be one in June and one in July. But until then, would you find somebody to share? You know, here's, here's where of these three, I think I'm being most stretched by the Lord in my head, my heart, my hand. The second, what relationship will be most impacted this week is, I assume, a greater fear of God. If it's a relationship with an unbeliever, is an evangelistic stretching as you grow in a fear of God. If it's a relationship with somebody that you've had a strain or sinned against or been sinned against, will it be a a, a budding and a leading forth of forgiveness? Perhaps if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, the one we've been referring to and talking about the goodness of our triune God, if you don't know Him personally, then that relationship, be reconciled to God, place your faith in Christ, and come share that with us at the end of service. We can celebrate with you and begin this beautiful process of discipleship. And finally, would you pray daily? This is very direct. Would you pray daily for God to show His saving love and build a greater hunger in this next generation as we pray through for those that will be entrusted to our care at Kids Club this week? Our God is faithful, isn't He? He's worthy of our song. So as we stand and we respond in song, would you do business with the Lord? You pray and give Him worship this morning. He's rightly due. Would you stand with me, church family?